but moments that matter. Moments that matter. Moments that matter. Welcome to this latest edition of the Moments That Matter podcast series. I'm your host, Darren Clear, and today I'm talking to Elaine Mead, who holds qualifications in psychology and criminology, and has dedicated her recent career to providing content and training to various outlets, including Ballast to Life, around positive psychology and its importance in the contemporary workplace. In a typically wide-ranging conversation today, we discuss some of the areas that Elaine has written about and try to provide an overview of positive psychology as a bit of a short masterclass and how you may be able to apply these principles in your own life from a personal or professional perspective. So sit back and relax and be prepared to be placed in a positive mindset from today's conversation with Elaine Moody. Okay, thanks Elaine for joining me this morning. Can you just start by giving me a bit of a brief rundown of your career to date and I guess also the qualifications that you have behind you already and what you're what you're currently working towards? I originally completed my first degree in uh, psychology and criminology in the UK, so a few years ago now that one, and from there went on and did just some basic counselling skills, qualifications. My first kind of iteration into the workforce was working for welfare to work which in UK is helping long-term unemployed people back into the workforce Uh, so similar to the job ready or job active programs that you have here in Australia which was a really it was it was a challenging role but also extremely rewarding and it taught me a lot about myself it taught me a lot about working with other people and it taught me a lot about the role of work in our lives as well you know when you're working with uh broad range of people from all different walks of lives and the reasons they're out of work is varied as well some of them were ex-offenders some of them had disabilities some of them had been parents um, single parents for a long time and children had grown up and were now faced with getting back into the workforce after a couple of decades out of it so you kind of start to realize the bigger role that work and jobs and careers have in our lives and the impact it can have on our psychological states as well so from there I kind of realized that it was really eye-opening for me to realise about the differences between our educational experiences and about how our education systems are geared towards one very kind of set cohort so I was lucky I loved school I was very academically minded I did really well but I know that's not the case for everybody and there are other avenues available Uh, so I started working in apprenticeships and traineeships to help younger people who perhaps weren't as academically minded as the school system allowed for to still have a really viable and really positive experience of getting into the workforce and gaining qualifications in a way that worked for them. And that's where I've been for a really long time. So for the last eight, nine years, I've been working across universities, high schools, colleges, helping all different kinds of young people get into their first jobs or understand what a career can mean, understand how qualifications and work experience all fits within that. And definitely something I've seen through that is the changes in the workforce and the changes in the way that we think about work. So very recently, I I decided to go back to university. I'm back studying psychology again to become accredited. And I've kind of now geared my work life to I work as a psychology communicator and writer. So I uh, work full time as a writer and researcher on psychology concepts for a few different organisations, just helping distill down a lot of those big psychology concepts, particularly within positive psychology, that's a favourite for me, and helping kind of translate those into really accessible, really actionable content for big audiences. 
Well, let's talk a bit more there about positive psychology itself. I mean, why do you feel it's such a growing area of importance? Uh, and, and you've sort of already touched on its importance in the workplace. But, well, I guess do drill down a little bit more on positive psychology itself and, and, and what it is and its importance. Yeah, so positive psychology, it's one of it's considered one of the newer approaches within psychology. Um, and basically, one of the founding fathers, uh, Martin Seligman, he, he kind of coined the phrase positive psychology. He was looking at a lot of the, the other approaches that exist and just felt there was too much of a focus on the negative. So um, particularly around psychoanalytical approaches, they were overly invested in the negative side of human experience and negative emotions. So they're asking the question, why are you sad? And what Martin Seligman wanted to do was ask the question, what makes you happy? So really just reframing that way of approaching how we think about psychology, how we think about our mindsets and bringing a more balanced perspective to how we we reflect on our life experiences. And that's really where it's at there. So it's really taking a lot of the clinical um clinical psychology and bringing in a bit more balance and starting to focus on what makes a meaningful life what makes a life fulfilling and how can we how can we focus on the good that is there as well in a bit of a nutshell and I think this is growing more because you know our world is continually changing particularly our ideas and thoughts around the world of work are where as it might have used to be you could you could go into a career path and that would be your job for life and we don't have that anymore so we have to think about different ways where we can take meaning and find fulfillment in our lives through not just work through lots of other avenues as well but work is a really big component so if someone is experiencing uh and it might not be as as, as full-on as you know full-blown depression or something but some someone is experiencing some problems in their lives Talk us through how focusing on what makes them happy can lead to a better outcome in in removing what what makes them sad rather than the focus on, on what makes you sad, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's lots of different stuff around that, and you're right there. It all really depends on, on where you are on that kind of um, spectrum of depression or anxiety or what it is exactly that you're experiencing and what your individual diagnosis might be. But in a very kind of general terms, psychology and neuropsychology as well, we know that when we think about negative things, when we keep thinking about our negative states and our negative emotions, we actually reinforce the neuro neural um, pathways for those thoughts, which means they get stronger and we can keep going back to those thoughts and it becomes very easy to get stuck in those cognitive spins. When we actually kind of, what what positive psychology does and uh, cognitive behavioural therapy is a huge part of this as well, it's actually looking at those thought processes and kind of almost interrupting them at a point and saying, okay, this is this is what you're feeling, this is what you're experiencing. How do we how do we change that? How do we redirect those thoughts to something better? And that's where positive psychology will come in and offers a whole range of techniques, theories, resources that can help you at that point where you're interrupting that negative thought or you're interrupting that that low mood, that that stuck in that um, rumination of that bad thing that happened and start channeling your thoughts back to something else and it's a way and it's a process and it's not just a one-off thing you know it is it is you do have to practice these techniques usually to kind of start implementing them more in your life and we're talking about things like the really popular ones here mindfulness meditation positive affirmations um, all of these things are part of positive psychology to help us start thinking more about how do we change our thoughts and how do we bring them into a greater balance for everything that we are and everything that we experience. Well, what would you say would be one of the easiest and most effective ways to start introducing some of these positive psychology techniques into not only your workplace and your work habits, but in your life in general? I think one of 
the easiest ways is really sitting down and taking a bit of a stock take of where you're at in life and what it is that is perhaps not working for you. Where, what are your needs and where are they not being fulfilled? And I think, you know, because within positive psychology, with these tools, these techniques, these resources, they're only as good as you knowing what you actually really need them for. And there's lots of stuff, there's lots of um, advice and guidance out there to help you do that. You can also obviously go and see your psychologist who will also help you do that and help provide you with the specific tools that might help the thing that you need them for. But I think mostly just reflecting on what it is you need. Something like mindfulness is, you know, it's a, a wonderful practice. It's something that we can all implement in everyday life. And I think as our lives at the moment are so driven towards um, living digitally and living online, actually adding a bit of mindfulness into your day, you know, for five minutes, not even that, um, can really help recenter your thoughts and bring you back to your presence and help you find appreciation for just the fact that you're here and you're living and there's lots of good going on as well. So in terms of incorporating mindfulness, which you've mentioned a couple of times and obviously, you know, (laughs) extending that out to meditation as well, if you wanted to, why do you feel that's important? And I mean, maybe even some of the science behind like what's happening within our minds when we're actually trying to be present in the moment um, and, and, and practicing mindfulness in our lives. So mindfulness is a really good one, and I'll go back to that point I was making where we can get stuck in these negative ruminations. Mindfulness can help you at that point where you're wanting to interrupt those, um, that that negative kind of space, I suppose, and those negative thoughts that are ongoing. So just, I suppose, just to kind of explain very, very, very generically about how mindfulness works. Mindfulness is uh, a practice of letting yourself just be in the present moment so you can practice mindfulness and I think we're bombarded with images every day of people sitting in a room (laughs) knees crossed on a sofa quiet eyes closed and that's fine if that works for you but mindfulness isn't just that mindfulness can be baking a cake and just being involved in that process of baking that cake not thinking about anything else but really just focusing on what you can see what you can smell what you can hear what you can feel and just being engaged in that present moment you can do it while you're walking you can do it while you're running while you're swimming it's really just about being very present in that motion of what you're doing in that activity and that can involve sitting quietly in a room or as I say for me that doesn't work my mindfulness takes place on my daily walks and it's a really just great way to either start my day or end my day and just bring me right back into my body bring me right back into my present and just put everything away so mindfulness is a really beneficial because it just helps quiet that noise. I think we all <laughs> all know what I'm talking about when I say that noise. I think we all have that constant run through in our heads of, oh, I've got to send that email. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Do this for the kids. Got to do that at work. Our website deadline. All this noise, all this stuff going on in our heads all of the time. And it can be it can be very anxious inducing. And I find that mindfulness is a really effective and very simple way to help just distill that noise down. Even if it's just for, to say, that five minutes of a day, calm your mind, calm that noise it's really it's really refreshing and resetting and and what you're doing is you're you're interrupting those those negative that negative spin as well in your head with those neural pathways where you're going back into that tears of everything that's going on and everything that's happening and it can help just end that well not end it but help you find a, a moment of calm to mm. to and start again so when you're walking for example so are you concentrating on each step that you're taking does it does it go that sort of far into being in in the moment or is it more just 
you, you're getting away from trying to you know think about the the 10 different things that you might have to do at the one time uh and just trying to sort of get into a space where you're just on, on your own and out of that sort of anxious mindset if you like yeah yeah it can be as, as as focused as watching my feet and feeling the ground that's and again for me it's really about grounding in that present moment so focusing on how my my shoes are feeling on my feet feeling the connection with the floor whether i'm walking on concrete or walking on grass i have a dog as well so he comes along with me on my walks and he i think has been really helpful in helping me boost my mindfulness because dogs you know by their very way of living, live in the moment. They don't really think about much else. So he's been a really fantastic reminder on my walks to just just enjoy it. And, you know, he's thrilled at being outside and engaging with the world helps me just, again, focus on that moment and focus on what I'm doing in that in the moment. And it can be, you know, we're in autumn at the moment or just going into winter here. So, you know, the trees are all changing colours and, and noticing that, noticing the colours, noticing the smells and the changes around me. It's, um, yeah, it's really, really helpful for me personally, for my mindfulness and getting that that time in the day to recenter. And that's a really great thing about mindfulness, um, that it, it doesn't have to be sitting in a room. It can be taking that walk, going for a run and baking a cake, as I say, whatever whatever works for you, whatever helps you to steal that mind and find a bit of calm and joy in that moment. Well, I notice also from, from the website and indeed from the book that you're contributing author to, uh, Career Journeys for Young People, that you are more focused on younger people with your work. I mean, is that because the importance you place on that generation or because young people are more open to ideas or a bit of both of that? I mean, I got the sense from from your opening sort of statement about you know where you've come in your career it's it's a good place to focus because you can get these people at the right stage of their career journeys and their lives to sort of put these practices into place for a longer period of time but is that a fair summation or or, or what what's sort of the thinking i guess behind more targeting young people uh with your work yeah i think all of that definitely having worked with young people for most of my career I know the value of these things at age and personally speaking as well I think there's a lot of, for many of us as adults I think there's things that we've learned along the way that we kind of go oh, I wish I'd known that when I was <laughs> what, 16 or 17 then you know that would have been really helpful then um, and of course you know it doesn't always work that way but I think these things are really useful and I think the more tools that we have and um, particularly at those really challenging ages of you know your teenage years and your early ten- 20s you know they are challenging times it's a lot of transitions it's a lot of stuff to learn it's a lot of growth to go through and the more tools and resources that we have the more beneficial that'll be we know that mental health is a huge issue for our young people we know that the world is changing in a way that none of us have ever seen before and it's the young people in our lives that are bearing the brunt of these changes and those transitions and having to learn really quickly how to handle them so the more support we can give them the more access the more we can actually tailor these things and make them accessible for our young people the better in my mind and as I said to you in preparation for this, I mean, I think there'll there'll be some younger people that will listen to this conversation, but also I think that this conversation will be targeted towards people that are managing younger people, so at a more advanced stage of their own careers and sort of managing people first coming into the workforce. What advice would you have to a manager managing a young team in ways of sort of getting positive psychology across to their teams in order to get them to perform at their best? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think for me, when I've been working in 
and across generational teams. It's really about having that conversation about the fact that we are a cross-generational team and not shying away from that conversation. I feel that can be just such a great jumping off point and acknowledging the fact that the young people in your teams have so much to give and so much to offer. Um, but, you know, they're not they're not fine-tuned yet they've still got a lot of learning to do and that's where again you as a mature professional in the workforce have a lot to offer them in terms of mentoring and support and guidance I've worked in teams where I've been told you know I need to almost get back in my box because I'm younger and I haven't done the trench work yet and I think there's a lot of young people entering the workforce who will feel that way and I think it's about now acknowledging that our teams are very intergenerational and everybody in that team has a lot to offer for different reasons. One of a really uh, core concept within positive psychology is recognising strengths. And that, for me, in the workforce is crucial for, for these kinds of teams where you really need to identify who's doing what really well, how can we maximise that, and then how do we all work together to complement those strengths that we've recognized and what are the best ways do you would you say to try and recognize strengths so let's say you're coming into a term and you're unfamiliar with with how people are are working etc are there any sort of easy ways or tips that you would give to, to identify strengths in different team members yeah again there's there's lots of different things that you can do and i feel this is where really good leadership and management will come in as well because you've got that kind of bird's eye view of who's in your team and what you can do and a part of for me being a really good leader is knowing where the gaps are as well so when you're hiring when you're bringing new people in you're actually looking for someone who's going to fill that gap I suppose in a way who's got the strengths that you think are maybe needing a bit of a boost in the current team that you have and then it comes down to leadership to actually orchestrate that you know teams do need to come together and, and, and know what their strengths are but when you're a team member I feel like you all your focus is on what you do and what you've been hired to do and your job role so leadership managers need to kind of come in and, and be really vocal and really present and kind of give direction to those teams and say look we we think that this is your strength and um, that's why we brought you on board and we feel that that will complement this and do that and, and, and have a really kind of active role in that as well and get team input ask people questions you know what do you feel you look for the self-awareness what do you feel your strengths are where is it that you are doing really well at and and, and build that over time it's not a overnight thing it's not a one-time meeting deal it's it's something that has to happen consistently and continually as you're growing a team and bringing them together i guess the other positive for that is you you're showing team members that they're being seen and they're being recognized for the things that they're doing well within the team environment absolutely yeah and then that helps direct them as well so they go okay great i'm really good at that so how do i how do i maximize that more what can i do to to build that within my team and how can i offer more through that strength that i have and what what would you say too about building morale i mean is it is it a similar process in terms of as, as you're focusing on the strengths that's going to build morale across the team yeah i think that that come morale will come with that i think being seen and recognised is one of the biggest boosters for morale in a team. You know, when you actually have someone like a manager or a leader, and it doesn't have to be that, it can also just be colleagues who are sitting there going, hey, like you did that and it was really great and I, I really appreciate how you delivered that or whatever it might be. That is so rewarding. Like everybody knows that feeling. Everybody knows what it's like to, to be told by someone higher up or in your team, um, you did a great job. Like 
for me, there's no bigger benefit in the workplace or for boosting my morale um, from speaking from personal experience of wanting to keep being a part of that team and, and wanting to reciprocate that as well. Um, you know, it is it's one of those things that when you start doing it as a really kind of authentic practice within your teams that everybody kind of starts adopt, adopting that as well and starts to see the value and the benefit of that. And the, the final sort of little case study question I'll give you is around if, if you go into a team and it is a negative sort of an atmosphere and, and people just keep coming to you with problem after problem after problem that you need to try and sort out or that they're identifying within their workplace. What would you suggest you try to do to, to overcome that and get a more positive mindset within the workplace? I think it's really going to be about doing a bit of investigation and find out what it is that's going on. Why are people so negative? Why is everybody complaining? What is it that's happening? And I guess I guess the question too is, so as you're doing that investigation, because what you don't want to do is, is continue to, to ask the questions and bring out the negative. So I guess, how do you start that inquiry process, but, but do it in a positive way rather than be focusing continually on the negatives and the problems that come up? Again, this is a tricky question because it really comes down to the team, right? So for a manager or leader in that position, it's really got to be about using, I hope, what you know about your team and using what you you um, have already identified as a starting point for that. So really looking at, and I feel like within any team, there are going to be players who you can turn to and rely on and ask these questions of in a way where it's not going to be perceived as you perpetuating negative feelings, um, but kind of starting to put those feelers out with team members who you know are going to give you an authentic response and then looking at how you can grow that investigation further across the team to find out from other players as well other team members what's happening and what's going on there's no real clear answer and I think most organizational psychologists will will tell you this as well that if they are working with a team or working with an organization where the culture is very negative it's really about having to go in and spend time observing and and trying to find out what is happening and what is going on and why is it that people are so unhappy and the usual culprits are poor management lack of transparency lack of honesty lack of communication you know staff are not in good fit roles so they're being expected to do things that are maybe above and beyond their job description without receiving compensation for that there's no recognition or value for staff and what they're doing it's you know it's 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 those kind of environments where negativity is perpetuated because they're not healthy work environments and those are usually the biggest culprits so if you find that you've got a negative like an entire negative team those are some of the starting points that you really need to start evaluating and looking at. Well, I'll move on there to talk about a few of the uh, the articles that I've touched on with uh, positivepsychology.com and you, and you said the blog was a good place to start and, and that's where I started. Give, I'll just throw a couple at you and maybe you can provide a bit of a better overview of these for the people listening. The first one is around positive self-talk. So tell us what that is and maybe include a couple of examples of that. Yeah, so positive self-talk is a really interesting concept that when I talk to people about this, I kind of go, oh, yeah, I do do that. With And we touched on this a little bit as well when I was talking about that noise that we have in our heads. So that self-talk, that stuff that we're talking about in our heads all the time, whether it's about ourselves, to ourselves, about the world, that is our self-talk. And a lot of the time it's negative. A lot of the time our self-talk is really about us putting ourselves down or complaining about stuff that we've done or said or didn't do or didn't say and positive psychology looks at self-talk and says 
like that exists. That is a thing that we all do. We can use that. That is a tool. That is a thing that we have that we can use to help change our thought processes and to bring our lives into a greater sense of balance. Uh, so rather than saying things so like if you've, if you've messed up on a project or you've done something wrong, oh God, I, you know, I'm an idiot. I, I screwed that up. No one's ever going to give me any work again or my boss is never going to trust me with a project like that again. It's it's changing it to to positive, which is, you know, oh, maybe perhaps I didn't do as well as I could, um, but that's okay. I've learned a lot from that experience. I know what I'm going to do next time um, and that's going to make me better in in my job, in my profession. So you're really looking at just being a bit more forgiving and a bit more empathetic with how you talk about yourself through the ways that you talk to yourself when you've maybe done something that you wish that you hadn't or whatever it might be. Well, I find personally, I like to repeat the scenario back to me, back to myself or even tell it to my wife or someone else and say, this is what I did wrong. This is what I'm not going to do again. And that sort of puts the positive spin on it to say, I've learned from that. That's now behind me. I know it's not. And I'm I'm confident because I understand so well what I did wrong. I'm not going to do it again. Rather than, yeah. you know, blaming everyone else or, or really getting into the self-doubt that you can sort of get into in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. And talking to somebody else, like you say, you talk to your wife about it. That's a really great way to solidify that thinking as well, because then I'm sure your wife gives you positive affirmation back to say, that's really great. It sounds like you've really got a handle on that or that sounds good. Do you know what I mean? So you're getting that reassurance that you thought through that process and you've come up with a solution and now you've got an external person saying, great, good, well done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you. So our self-talk, you, you touched on it a bit there, like the blaming of other people. Um, self-talk tends to fall into four kind of categories. So personalising, where we blame ourselves. Polarising is where everything is either good or everything is bad. So if there's no middle ground, it's one or the other. Magnifying is where you only focus on the bad or negative, And that could only just be, you know, the, the tiny little dot is one little negative component in a situation, but you only focus on that and dismiss any positive and catastrophizing, which is where you only expect the worst. And catastrophizing is actually something I've been very guilty of in my life. I'm always kind of thinking about worst case scenarios and, and mediating those before they've even happened. And that's very tiring and very time consuming and can lead to a lot of negative thoughts as well. So that's that's quite a, quite a destructive one, actually. Well, and I think too, it's a bit like the human nature is when something goes wrong, particularly when you're in a team environment, you, you're trying to look for other people. Oh, what did this person do wrong? What did that person do wrong? Yeah. But I find it's actually, it's good to take a breath and say, okay, you, a lot of times you can't control what the other people have done within a certain situation, but you can control your own actions and what you did. So that's when you can get into the self-reflection side of it and say, what is it that I did that contributed to whatever went wrong and how can I improve that in future? Absolutely, yeah. And that's really, again, another really great point there is about you can't control what other people do and you can't control what they're going to take ownership for. You can only take control of what you've done and what you take ownership of. So, yeah. Definitely. Well, let's move on to the next. The next one's benefits of happiness, and it seems to be that that would be self-explanatory. Well, if I'm happy, I'm happy. Like that, that's the benefit yeah. of it. But that, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? I mean, talk us a little bit about the benefits of happiness. Happiness is is one of those things, and again, this is I suppose where Seligman decided to step in with his positive psychology and say, look, we we don't explore this, we don't study it, we're not really researching what actually happens when we're happy or why we would want to feel happier and you know there's you only have to do a little bit of a google i suppose around the the uh 
the happiness research to start learning some really fantastic benefits of it um, that go beyond just our emotional and our psychological. It actually has a whole bunch of physical health benefits as well. So, so studies have found that people who um, reported being happier across their lifetimes actually had better heart health um, and were less uh, at risk of having cardiovascular disease. People who've rated themselves as generally being happier in their lives bounce back from illnesses and um, conditions quicker or are able to adapt to recovery, rehabilitation methods better than those who perhaps have rated themselves not so happy in their lives. Um, so it's really it's really about building a mindset that is is benefiting other parts of your life as well. There's a really, really fantastic study which is still ongoing. It's the longest ever study into happiness um, carried out by Stanford where they've just been tracking a group of men uh, throughout their lives from when they were in their early 20s and they're up into their 80s now I think most of these um, some have passed away now but they've been looking at those that are living the longest what is it that is is helping them going and what are the factors that have been there throughout their lives that have led to these longer happier lives and the thing they're finding is relationships so that for me is a really really crucial point there around any kind of happiness when you're looking at happiness at all that a lot of the studies are saying it's the relationships that you cultivate in your life that have a significant impact on how you would rate yourself in terms of happiness i mean on a deeper level what do you think it is or why do we as a society struggle to be happy mm -hmm. what what yeah why are we focused on the negative probably more than we're focused on the positive i mean is it just been something that's built up over a number of number of years in certain practices that we've done particularly in the workplace or do you think there's there's something a little bit more um uh, there's other dynamics at play that are causing that i think yeah i think there's just there's so many moving parts in that and we are not set up as a society to focus on the positives. I mean, you only have to open a newspaper um, or jump on a news website to to see that, that we, we, we don't focus too much on the positives and the negatives. We do, we are built toward negativity as well. Um, I don't know if you've heard of something called negativity bias, which is where our brains, and it's part of a, it's, it's assumed to be part of a survival mechanism from back in the day where we recall negative experiences more easily and more readily than we do positive experiences because it's supposed to be part of our survival. So, you know, you want to remember that that line is maybe going to try and eat you <laughs> more readily than anything else. And that's something that we've still got existing in our, in our lives now. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in positive psychology that when I talk to, and I, cause I'm reading, I, I live, I live in positive psychology. I'm reading and I'm researching every day. Um, and when I talk to friends and family about some of the stuff that I'm reading about or learning about, and they're just so surprised. And it, it makes me realize that actually there's, there's so much stuff out there that we just don't get access to. There's so much really good stuff, really, really positive, really valuable stuff that we generally as a community, as a society are not getting access to. So I think as well, um, we live in a society that is geared towards negativity and we need to kind of rethink about how we engage with a lot of the content that's out there and a lot of stuff that's easily accessible and put immediately in front of us and maybe go a little bit deeper and try and find some of the good as that is there it is there <laughs> well how much satisfaction do you get out of your work and, and and maybe share some 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 positive stories um of work that you've done over the last few years okay 
an immense amount of satisfaction <laughs> out of my work. I um, I really love it. And I've been really lucky that it's been pretty organic in how my career has developed going from working in classrooms with young people to now I work fully remote, writing and researching about stuff that I find really interesting and really enriching for me personally as well. Um, at the moment, I'm working on a positive psychology app. So I'm lead researcher and writer. We're developing an app that's to help parents apply positive psychology techniques with um, their children. So we're looking at how do we take all of this research, take all of this stuff. There's a lot of content out there about how to be a positive parent and how do we distill that down into something that's really, really accessible, really usable and really valuable and that that's that's a really great um great project of my, at the moment and um, we've started to get early feedback on on the app what we've been developing and what we've been putting together and it's it's all been fantastic everybody seems to really really like it and like the idea and what we're putting together so that's yeah that's really rewarding for me as a as a writer when I get feedback on something that I've written from somebody just commenting and saying this this has really helped me I didn't even know this was a thing and you I've, I've, I've taken this away and I've really learned a lot about myself and I've been able to apply that to to the betterment of learning about myself that that's incredibly rewarding when you've you know you've dedicated time to gathering all this information and distilling it down into something that someone can do that with to get that feedback is always really great and in terms of the young people that I've worked with again I've, I've got students who reach out to me now on LinkedIn that I maybe worked with a few years ago they're like oh you you helped me five years ago and I remember what you said about this and I've gone on and I've got this job and I'm now doing this and that that again is really great you know just knowing that what the work that you're doing because I'm really passionate about it and knowing that it's actually having that impact that you want it to have even if it's small um yeah it's really it's really great it's a good feeling well, the last blog article I wanted to touch on was it actually goes back to something you said at the start you said people one of the first steps that people can do is I guess take it get a stock take of their life if you like and, and where your life's at and what what you what you feel is going well, what maybe is not going that well. One of the blog articles was about the scales to measure satisfaction with life. So talk to me about some of the, the scales that you use and, and how you'd sort of, I guess, look at that and, and, and put that into practice. Through, through positive psychology, they love to develop a scale and a quiz and a <laughs> metric. It's one of our favourite things to do. But yeah, the, the satisfaction with life scale is, is the main one. There's a few different ones, but this is kind of, I suppose, the main one that has got more validation because it's so widely used. And it's it's a really simple questionnaire, which is made up of five statements. And when you read through the statements, you are asked to um, give them a rating. So you give them a seven um, scale score, one being that you strongly disagree with the statement and seven being that you strongly agree with the statement. At the end, you tally up the scores and then you, the uh, researchers have developed basically just a really brief overview of what your score means and it determines how satisfied generally you are with your life. So, I mean, I can read through the five statements just to give you an idea. So the first one is, in most ways, my life is close to my ideal. The conditions of my life are excellent. I'm satisfied with my life. So far, I have gotten the important things I want in life. If I could live my life over, I would change almost nothing. So you rate each of those statements on a scale of one to seven, and then you tally up your score. And you can access this through the positivepsychology.com blog, or you can just Google um, scale to measure life satisfaction, and it will bring up a whole bunch of stuff. You'll be able to get access to all of it there. But it will tell you how kind of roughly satisfied you are of your life. So that's a really 
good overview. That's a really great tool to start getting an understanding. But the one thing I always suggest when I'm people are using these tools is that, you know, they're a starting point. They're not a measurement and they're not the concrete thing of your life. Like I've probably done that scale four or five times throughout my life. And obviously my, my um, score changes because my life changes and the things that I'm doing with my life change as well. So always use these things as things that you come back to time and again to give yourself a little bit of an overview, a little bit of insight. And then it's down to you to make a judgment on, okay, so maybe I've got a low score. I'm obviously not that satisfied right now. What is it that I'm not satisfied with? How do I go on um, and assess the different life domains that I've got and where I'm feeling unsatisfied? And again, there, there are plenty of other scales out there to help you measure each of those domains, but that one is a good good starting point and and i guess then so it starts the conversation in your own mind about where where your life's at in terms of your satisfaction and then what areas where i may need to work on a little bit but also i guess going back to the positive psychology side what areas that i am satisfied with and maybe the broader question of why are you satisfied with those areas of your life and why why have you gone well there and can you apply that uh, to some of the areas where you may be unsatisfied. Definitely, yeah, totally. A couple of final questions, and this is a bit more of a personal thing for me. I did mm-hmm. notice on the website there's some blogs there about coaching, and I've actually gone on and read some of the blogs about positive psychology and coaching because I've been a lifelong coach, but mainly of boys' sport. This year, I went in, my son's actually started the coaching now, and we're co-coaching a girls' soccer team. And I've been very, I've been fascinated by the different psychology between coaching boys and coaching girls. And I'll give you the, where that sort of comes from. I find with the boys that I've been coaching over the years, they all come in and they all think they're the best player. And you've got to, you spend your whole year trying to convince them that they're not as good as they think they are. And they (laughs) probably should defer at different times to other players within the team. Whereas the girls has been, I've spent the whole year up to this point trying to convince them that they're better than they think they are and that mm. at certain times they need to take the game on and not defer to other teammates. I mean, is that something that you've found in your studies that genders something to be mindful of, particularly at a younger age um, mm. when teaching? And, and the final point I make too is I find the interesting thing is too, socially the girls are far more outgoing and I can have a much more of a serious conversation with them than what the boys were um, in coaching as well. And that's probably around, you know, the fact that the girls are, the, the, maybe do mature a little bit uh, faster in, in some of those emotional areas than boys and things like that. But I guess from your perspective, is gender something to be mindful of when you're trying to put across these practices, particularly to younger people? Gender is something to be mindful of, but generally speaking, psychologically, there are very minimal differences between boys' and girls' brains and men and women's brains. So how we adopt psychological practices, there there isn't really a gender divide. What there is is sociological influence. So when we're looking at those differences and what you're saying there is, you know, the boys are a bit quieter, the girls are more outgoing, we as a society, we celebrate those differences and we hold girls to different expectations than we do to boys. And I've seen this time and again in the classroom, seeing girls and boys be spoken to and punished or rewarded for very similar behaviours in very different ways because we do have different expectations for boys and girls in our society. So when you're seeing these differences, um, um, you're seeing 
again, particularly the ways girls might respond to their own talents or strengths, it is probably more coming down to their social influences that they've experienced throughout their lives rather than their actual psychology. And those social influences have a huge impact on their individual psychology. So it will influence the personality traits and the characteristics that they choose to um, amplify or that they choose to kind of close up a little bit more. Generally speaking, girls aren't celebrated for being competitive. They're not. You only have to look at some of the stuff that's happening in the news at the moment in the tennis sports and, you know, some of the um, really great athletes there that are being very outspoken and being absolutely trashed in the media. These female um, tennis players who are being really um, taken out in our media for just being outspoken. And, and, you know, if a a guy tennis player did that, nobody would bat an eyelid. It is the way that we, I think, particularly in sports as well, sports is a whole other thing when you're talking about coaching and psychology and gender. So um, there are differences, yes, but psychologically they're not something that we have to... um, look out for but sociologically yes and, well i mean that was certainly my sense of that we where we live in a society where as you say it's not celebrated girls being uh, you know dominant on the sporting field but it is mm-hmm. probably i didn't probably think about the other side of it where it, it, they are it is more celebrated for girls being outgoing and um mm-hmm. and maybe even being a bit more outspoken in these days would probably be a good thing um for, for girls and for females yeah. in general so um but it is again i guess coming back to the positive side that we've got to look at as, as a society how do we uh, celebrate everything that's good about what what men and women are doing in sporting yeah. fields and in, and in uh, academic fields or the arts or wherever it might be and not try and sort of push one down and, and elevate the other. And I think that's the, that's the next big challenge for us. And I think, you know, and again, it's really easy to get stuck on the narrative that, oh, you know, we're not doing very well and it's all still negative. But, um, you know, there are some really, really positive happening I think the fact that we are able to have these conversations and I think more people are having these conversations and setting themselves up as role models in these spaces you know there is still a lot of really great stuff happening um and in terms of directions how we're moving in terms of celebrating individuals and success rather than male success or female success I feel like we are moving in the right direction it might be slow it might not be perfect but I feel like it is it is happening well, final question on that point. We're within the same girls' soccer team, we're actually having a community camp that we're organising with their families uh, and that we're running uh, through our local Apex Club. And it's a, it's all about building resilience within the community. And that comes from our community was involved in the bushfires a couple of years ago. So we've got some funding to help build resilience in the young people that are coming through. Uh, what part does positive psychology play in the ability to be resilient and I guess what sort of um, advice would you have in in someone trying to sort of pass on some skills to help a community and particularly younger people to be more resilient? Yeah so resilience is a huge part of positive psychology research and it's one of the things that I think a lot of um, researchers in the area would would say is you know it's something to focus on and help people boost in terms of building resilience again a lot of the the positive psychology techniques and a lot of the resources there are are geared towards helping people focus on those positive narratives and those positive thoughts and experiences they drive ourselves forward so it's really interesting you mentioned resilience because I've actually been researching very recently something called psychological rigidity which kind of almost goes hand in hand 
with resilience. So psychological rigidity is um, our capacity to adopt new information into our ways of thinking. And someone who's high in this rigidness um, really, really struggles to take in new information that um, is against the way they currently think about themselves or the world around them, um, which has a direct impact on their resilience. So it means that they really struggle to um, change course or to adapt to new information or to accept that things are going to change or the way that they think about things are going to change as well. And researchers have been indicating that the fewer experiences that we have in early life, the higher in psychological um, so the few experiences we have in early life to face failure and to overcome setbacks and to experience challenges that forces us to grow, um, the higher in psychological rigidity we will be, which makes it very difficult later on in life to accept changes when they come up. So in terms of um, building resilience in young people, it really is about letting them have the opportunity to learn from their own experiences, let them make mistakes, let them experience failure and be there as a guiding hand, as a guiding coach to say, look, that happened, but there are ways to move past this. Um, how, how can we do that? And what do you think are some of the ways that would help you to focus on the next step. So it's helping them progress past that and always be thinking about what does our future look like? What does our future scenario look like? Let's not get stuck on this negative and this one point in time, which is again, if you're high in psychological rigidity, you will just stay stuck there and you will stick to your guns and you will refuse to accept um, that things can change or new information can influence your, your thinking. Um, it's about helping them move past that and encourage them to accept the experience as it happens and think about how do you, what are the next steps? How do we move forward? So yeah, that's that's about resilience, really. I suppose as a as a as a way to build it. And no, I'm not well, sure. that's a that's a very good. I mean, so essentially, what you're saying is the ability to accept change and experience change will have a direct impact on your the level of resilience that you're able to display when change inevitably comes into your life, which I guess makes perfect sense when you think about it that way, but it's not something that we link together when we're trying yeah. to, to deal with those things, is it? Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And as I say, there's something, because um, again, I've been reading about positive parenting, so we're talking about resilience in, in young people, and there's something that's quite... Um, quite common now um helicopter parenting i don't know if you've heard of this yes, yes. yeah so um actually why that's you know it probably doesn't take a genius to work out that it's not going to be very helpful for your child long term but what we're seeing is that um something also called prolonged childhood so parents who um well we, we are experiencing generations of prolonged childhood anyway because we're expecting children to be in school till they're 18 so they're always in that category of being a child until that point um but parents are holding on to their children for longer as well so wanting to kind of make decisions for them and shelter them from these harsh realities of life um which isn't a bad thing that's not a bad thing but what you're doing is you're denying them the opportunity to build those skills that you know you want them to have later in life which is resilience and resilience comes from experiencing challenges and experiencing setbacks and working out the process past those things and what would you say i mean the final question to you is and i guess looking forward to the future what would you say the biggest thing you've learned in the last few years and indeed in all through all your studies uh, that, that you that you want to apply and I guess and also look forward and, and where do you see yourself and, and this entire movement in say 10 years time 
Wow, yeah, that's a great question. Personally, I mean, there's been so much and that's what drives me. And one of the things I really love about working and reading and researching positive psychology and why I've made the decision to go back and become fully accredited as a psychologist is um, I'm always just finding new stuff that I'm able to look at and go, wow, yeah, no, that's directly applicable to my own life. Like there's, there's not a week that goes by where I don't find something and go, wow, like this has helped me really understand something, you know, we, and, and a lot of psychology points, you know, our early experiences influence have the biggest influence on how we act and how we um, behave and engage and respond to the world. And, you know, if you, for me, like, not that I had a terrible upbringing, but there were challenges, there were a lot of challenges. And there was a lot of stuff that I didn't process early on in my life, particularly in my early 20s. And I felt I spent a long time being, feeling lost and not sure what to do with myself. So getting into positive psychology deeper has helped me go back to some of those challenges and some of those experiences and just be like, oh, okay, now I understand what happened there. And I understand why I behave the way I do now because of that thing that happened. Um, and now I understand what I need to do to change that behavior because I don't want to have a short temper. I, <laughs> my family will happily tell you that I've been categorically um categorized as having a short temper at times which is something that I've worked really hard on because I wanted to understand why that was and and move past it because it's not a beneficial characteristic to be known by (laughs) having a short temper so positive psychology has really helped me in that respect to understand some of the early experiences I had that led to that behavioral reaction and how to move past it so I, I feel really confident that that's not something I'm stuck on anymore in terms of the future of it what we're seeing now And one thing I really love is that it is positive psychology and the theories and the research and the techniques are becoming more widespread. Like you said, they're becoming of great interest in the workplace. And that's because our understanding of work and how uh, the role of work in our societies has changed dramatically in recent years. So it's really great to see that the more understanding we have for the ways that work careers, job, all that stuff influences our mental health, our psychology, our sense of identity, um, to see leaders, organisations saying, okay, we know that. So now we need the techniques to help our staff and help our teams be really, really good um, in the workplace and feel good in the workplace as well. So more of that would be fantastic and more understanding and celebration of individuals in the workplace through positive psychology, I think is is something I'm seeing more of and I really hope continues. So a good place to leave the conversation today with Elaine looking forward to what the future may hold for the positive psychology concepts that we've covered today and the movement as a whole. And from that point of view, think for yourself and maybe take some time in the coming days to plan your own future by staying to employ some of the positive psychology concepts Elaine has touched on today and envisage a brighter future for yourself and those around you. So thank you once again for your time today and we look forward to bringing you some more enlightening and engaging conversations on the Moments That Matter platform very soon. <music>